0: 400 kilometres south of Sydney, nestled in the heart of the Sapphire Coast, you'll find the township of Eden that really lives up to its name. It's a small town of about 3,000 people that every now and again balloons out as an influx of tourists swarm up and over the coast, all set to enjoy this gorgeously picturesque part of the world, with its clear and cool waters of Twofold Bay sparkling next to the famous hourglass shaped headland, all backed by stunning national parks that morph into ancient, untouched wilds. Still, regardless of how pretty it is and how much Melburnians like to get a bit rustic up there, It's not unfair to say that Eden usually doesn't have a lot going on. But every year, on the first weekend of November, this tiny town comes together in a celebration of an extraordinary past as it plays host to the Eden Whale Festival. A wonderful three-day event that features food and song and dance and arts and crafts and a street parade and the retelling of one of the most unique stories in the world a story that stretches for tens of thousands of years. The people who live here on this tiny coastal town have always had a long-standing connection and affection for the killer whales, the orcas, who live right in the waters beside them. From the Indigenous people, the Yuin, to the white invaders and on to the modern town, there has been a generational long understanding between the humans of Twofold Bay and the orcas who reside beside them. And it's more than just a circumstance of living arrangements. The people of Eden never viewed the orcas as just animals that they could use to their own end. They were part of the township, and they were their comrades, their friends, their brothers. Their story is almost the stuff of fairy tales, right up to the tragic conclusion in 1930. The connection between the whales and the humans was established countless generations ago, It was the Ewan people who began it, although it has been suggested that it was actually the killers themselves who started it, or that it was just simply a good chance of geography. Twofold Bay is a little lip of land that sticks out from the coast, and is right in the path of where the southern right and humpback whales migrate up from the southern Antarctic waters to the warmer climes of northern Queensland to have their calves. Along the way, these larger whales have to navigate past the smaller, deadlier killers, who had long ago devised a way of using the shape of Twofold Bay as a sort of funnel to trap the larger whale in shallow waters where they could exhaust them before ripping them to shreds. In this process, the whale carcass would very often become beached. But the orcas, they would always beach the whales in a very specific part of Twofold Bay, right at the place where they had been called to. Documents from the 1840s, made by some of the first whites in the area, describe a ceremony where an elder Ewan man would call the orcas to drive the whale to shore. Two fires would be lit on the shore, some little distance apart from one another, and the old men would then walk between them, leaning with a hand in each stick, pretending to be lame as a way of attracting the sympathy of the orcas and encouraging them to drive the whales in that direction to give him some food. And it worked! Incredibly, it worked and the beached whales would always end up in the small location just between the two brightly burning fires. But a part of the whale would always be missing. Its lips and its tongue. That's all of the whale the killers would ever eat, and the rest was used by humans. This long ago became known as the law of the tongue. The Ewans had a fascinating use of the rotting carcass. They would actually climb naked inside the rotting flesh and remain encased in there for hours with only their heads sticking out. The heat of decomposition and the putrid smelling oils were claimed to have a curative effect, uh, healing any body of joint pains and arthritis and the such, and interestingly enough, this was something that the whitefellas were more than happy to try out for themselves. Well, let's face it, uh, we've never had a problem with smelling bad. You see, there was even one story of a man from Bega, some 50 kilometers away, who had come to encase himself in a dead well in an attempt to cure his arthritis. This was apparently so successful that he walked all the way back home. Now, the first Europeans began to invade and take over in the 1820s, but one of particular note was a man who arrived in the 1840s known as Benjamin Boyd, a Scottish entrepreneur and all-round bastard. As well as trying his hand at whaling, he was known for attempting to set up his own little town called Boytown, which in his own egotistical way he hoped would one day rival Sydney. And... Mr Boyd was the first man to kidnap and bring islanders to Australia as slaves, a process that became known as Blackbirding. He was an awful person, and everything with his name attached to it needs to be changed, but he did meet with a rather charming end. He was murdered on the Solomon Islands in 1851, supposedly shot by an unknown islander man, though his body was never found. It's almost as poetic as what happened to Captain Cook. The half-constructed Boyd Town became a ghost town and was only rejuvenated in 1940 and reborn as a tourist park. But at the time, this did relieve one particular man who'd been employed to build this town in a bit of a tight spot. He was a Scottish carpenter by the name of Alexandra Davidson. After Boyd's little empire collapsed, Davidson and his business partner, Solomon Solomon, yep, purchased much of Boyd's old whaling gear and set about starting their own company, repainting all the boats a vibrant green colour in honour of Davidson's proud Scottish heritage. Together, Alexander and his son, John, began whaling from their five or seven oared boats and, with their carpentry skills, they could maintain and repair their little green boats quite easily. Now, the interesting thing about the Davidson clan is that they were a deeply religious people but in the good way. They were teetotaling, lay-preaching Presbyterians, and the Davidsons believed and acted on that belief that all men were created equal under God, which led them to not only hiring a significant amount of Ewan people to work on their crews, but also paying them the same amount as the whites. But they still stole their land and denied them their culture and their language, as they also wanted to save them. Yes, the Davidsons were remarkable in their attitudes for the time, but let's face it, the bar is pretty damn low. By all accounts, there was a sense of loyalty and respect between the two peoples, even to the point where the Davidsons listened and learned about the Ewan's beliefs and relationships with the killers, right down to how they referred to the Orcas as their family, their brothers, and the law of the tongue. And they saw how troubled these people were at these new whites of the region who were destroying this precious relationship. You see, there were reports even in the 1840s of killers and whalers interacting, although not kindly. The whalers felt that they were in competition with the killers and would actually use their spears and oars to drive them away, in some cases even hunting and killing the orcas for fun. There was one crew in the bay that had determined that they would catch the largest killer ever sighted, one which had a dorsal fin of over two meters in height, though they never succeeded. This infuriated the Ewan people and the Davison's, taking this into account, decided that to please the UN members of their crew, their own little company, wouldn't harm the Killers, even if they did get in the way. Now it's unclear when the lack of hostilities between the two species evolved into an active partnership, when the Killers' presence around the Whalers turned from something of a mild irritant to a much appreciated necessity. But eventually, the killers would associate themselves only with Davison's crew being able to recognise the distinct green-coloured boats, and steer clear of the other whalers who were less welcoming. A system developed between the three main pods that existed around the coast, and the humans. A system that many people of Eden all tend to agree was devised by the killers themselves, rather than the men. An extraordinary claim to most, but simple everyday life to those in Eden. In many ways, the killers did what they'd been doing for centuries, find a migrating whale, push them into the shallows of Twofold Bay, and then harry them until exhaustion made it easy to go in for the kill. Only this time, they invited the whalers along. One or two of the killers would break off from where the pack was chasing a whale in deeper water, and swim at least 10 kilometers out of their way so they could go right to the front door of the Davidson property. Once again, this shows, like with the fires lit by the Ewen people, that the killers knew exactly where they were going and who they were dealing with. They would then flop tail, bringing their tails above the surface and then allowing them to crash down and make the most remarkable noise, like the sound of a gunshot echoing across the bay. This would alert the whalers who would rush out from all corners of the township with cries of "Rush o!" rising up from everywhere as they would bolt down to ready the boats and then go out to meet their fellow hunters who would be waiting for them in the shallows. And it was always the same killer who came to them, who alerted them, and who was even known to grab onto the line out the front of the boats and pull them along to hurry them up. He was known as Old Tom. Now Old Tom wasn't the only named whale, they all had names, and the whalers could recognise each one of them by their dorsal fin or their behaviour. They all knew the leaders and to which pods they belonged to, there were three main ones like I mentioned, and the pod leaders were Stranger, Hookie and Cooper, all females as orcas tend to be led by female orcas, though the whalers couldn't tell the difference at the time. Then the most notable, there was Typey, Albert, Youngster. Humpy, Jimmy, Jackson, Little Jack, Big Jack, Big Ben, Young Ben, Brearley, Sharky, Charlie Udgerie, Skinner, Montague, Kitchener, and Walker. (laughs) Now, these are the most common names that we know. I mean, there were at least 50 orcas in those three pods, but these are the most prominent ones. And while they were all loved and treated as part of the community, it was old Tom who Davidson considered to be part of the family. Out of all of the other killers, Old Tom was the one who had the most frequent contact with the whalers, and was the one who developed the most interest and returned affection. He in turn was known as the humorist by the whalers, who thought that he had a sly, joking attitude to him, as he used to pull on the ropes not only to tug them along, but also to every now and again act as an anchor and prevent movement. He played around with other boats in the bay, not just when there was whales to bring in, pulling them around in circles seemingly just for fun. He was also known to swim very close to the boats and bob his head just above the water to stare at the whalers. There was an intelligence in those looks, curiosity, almost as if old Tom was just as interested in these wild killers of the seas as they were in him. Now after the whale was taken down and the carcass would be dragged into shallows, it was then left there overnight so the killers could eat their fill, and the whalers only returned the next day to drag the whale to the station and cut it up. You see, the law of the tongue lived on. Out of the whole Davison clan, it was Alexandra's grandson, George Davison, born in Eden in May 1863, who probably had the closest connection to the killers. He began whaling at the age of 14, and by the 1890s he became the master whaler and took over the family business. He had known Tom his entire life and had never been on a whale hunt without his old friend. He had even swum with Tom on many occasions, and this, along with his escaping many dangerous and difficult circumstances and situations out on the ocean, earned him the nickname of Fearless George. Because you needed a certain sense of fearlessness to do what they did. Whaling was hard, dangerous work, particularly for the type of whaling that those in Eden trusted the killers with. On many occasions, Old Tom would flop tail in the middle of a moonless night, and the whalers would still follow, in total darkness, these creatures that could so easily destroy them. And sometimes, well, that did happen. The frenzy of a hunt? As the massive southern or humpbacks were being ground down, sometimes those tiny little green boats would get too close or be too slow. Sometimes they would even see it coming, a massive tail or fin slowly rising above them before crashing down hard on those small wooden boats, smashing them to pieces. The men called this the Hand of God. And then they'd be in the water with up to a dozen apex predators, and not only the killers, Sharks were known to frequent the area, and were usually present at the killing of a whale, being drawn to by the scent of blood and ready to snatch up any scraps. The men in the water were at the complete mercy of the killers, and never once was anyone attacked. In fact, the killers were known to split up in these occasions, where half would continue to worry the larger whale, while the rest would abandon the hunt to swim around the men protectively, keeping the sharks away and even on occasion, grabbing the men gently in their mouths and pulling them to the surface. Now this behaviour has genuinely stumped marine biologists, and there are too many records from too many different people and too many different sources from too many different occasions to just dismiss this as a one-off. Even more interestingly is that it has been known that orcas in captivity will and have killed their trainers. So, what stopped wild orcas from certainly giving in to their instinct? Well, the people of Eden think they know. Trust. Loyalty. Respect. Friendship. Or, as some people have joked, maybe humans just don't taste that good. Now, the whalers would often return the favour. There were times during the kill when the ropes from the harpoons or something like the netting would tangle up in the killers rather than their target, and whalers would not hesitate to grab a knife and fling themselves into the water to cut their mates free. There were times when a killer would accidentally beach themselves or run into some netting near the shore, and the town would work together to save them. If these stories once again sound fantastical, there's a shocking piece of evidence that proves their validity. Some of the men reported that when they were cutting a killer free from some netting, the orca would go very still and calm, while a few of the other members of the pod would circle around it, and they all made an unusual sound, like purring or a door creaking. All men reported this as something they'd never quite heard before, and the only way for humans to hear this noise? Well, it can't happen in the boat. We've got to have our heads underwater to hear that. But sometimes, help came too little, too late. The first terrible occasion where humans were too late to help one of the killers came in 1900. Typey, one of the more well-known killers that had a neatly curved dorsal fin, accidentally beached himself on Asling's beach while chasing down a smaller minky whale. Word was sent out to the Davisons who rush owed their boats and set off to help, but they were too late. There was an unexpected factor this time, in the form of a stranger to the region, a man by the name of Harry Silks. Silks was the first on the scene, and obviously had no regard for Typie, or knew of the town's relationships with the Orcas. While the Davidsons' crew rushed out to help, accompanied by distressed killers who were following them along, they were too far away to stop what was happening. They waved their arms and screamed at him to stop, but Silks paid no attention. Many thought he was looking to cut out the teeth to make out some money, And before anyone could intervene, Silks had pulled out a knife and stabbed Typey to death, through the eyes, multiple times. The town went mad. Black and white alike were united in their grief at this murder to the point of riot and revenge. Silks was very nearly lynched and needed police escort to take him out of town safely. He was then told, quite poignantly, never again to return to this part of the coast. But he was never charged, nor did he face any repercussions, because there was no law against killing whales, after all. The fallout from this was catastrophic, particularly to the Ewan people. They had already had so much stolen from them. Their land, their language, traditions, their children. The one thing they thought the white might at least understand was the importance of the orcas, their brothers, their ancestors, but they couldn't even do that. After the death of Taipi, what was left of the Yuan people picked up as a whole and left Eden, moving to Walaga Lakes and not returning for decades. George Davison at least tried to make some sort of amends, and a year later he travelled up to Sydney with the intention of making killer whales a protected species under Australian law. He was laughed out of court and nothing was done until decades later, but this does mark the first time in the world where someone tried to make orcas a protected species. After the murder of Typee, about half of the killers didn't come back. Perhaps they felt betrayed. At any rate, it was only those that had worked with the whalers the closest who stayed, who, including, of course, Old Tom. Then in 1926, it was the Davisons themselves who suffered tragedy. George's eldest son, Jack, had been returning to Eden with his family across the bar. Jack, like his father, grandfather and great-grandfather, was an experienced whaler and boatman and was confident enough to have his whole family in the boat with him as they sailed back to Eden after a night's entertainment. But it was dark and his wife Alice warned Jack not to take any risks with their three children on board though he cheerfully replied that he could sail that stretch in a milk dish. But even the most experienced sailors can't prepare for a freak wave. The small green boat was swamped and then capsized and the family was swept out into the black, rough sea. Jack managed to swim out and save his daughter and his wife, then continued to swim out in search of their son and their baby. And eventually Jack didn't come back. The whole town rushed to the rescue, but it was far too late. The next day, the body of the baby was found, and then two days later, the son. But search as much as they could, they could not find any trace of Jack. It was a week after the accident that George noticed something odd in the bay. The killers were acting very strangely, specifically old Tom. They didn't usually stay in the bay, but for some reason they hung around these shallow waters, swimming round and around restlessly. Old Tom in particular kept breaching, rising and falling over one particular spot. Eventually, George took the hint and sailed out to where Tom was rising and falling, and there, stuck under a rock, he found Jack. Jack had been 36 years old at the time. Most incredibly, on the day of the funeral when they sailed across the bay with Jack's body in the boat, the killers swam right alongside them, old Tom just out in front as he always was. And this wasn't for a hunt. It was one of the few times the killers hung around the boats, not for any particular reason, except one. It was almost as if they were an honor guard, as if they knew exactly what was happening that day. In Eden, the killers were described as beautiful, sleek, lovely, intelligent creatures But this affection didn't extend so much to their cousins who they were hunting. Alice Otten, George's niece, who was 103 at the time of recording this, remembered the day that she saw a southern right whale being taken down in the bay. As per usual, the killers had run it in and the men were throwing harpoons, again and again, sometimes getting close enough to steady the boat above the distressed animal to stab down in quick succession while the killers bit and tore away. Then, in her own words, I heard this dreadful, desperate moan, and it was as if it had got beyond its capacity for suffering and despair. And that was when I realized it was a terrible thing they were doing, a terrible thing. They were murdering this beautiful creature. Elsie Severs, George's daughter and Alice's cousin, had a much more blunt outlook. It was a living. And it was, and a hard one at that. Though there were some remarkable feats achieved in the heyday, Eden actually has the world record for the largest whale ever caught with a hand-thrown harpoon, a whale that came in at 97 feet long. But the Davisons themselves only caught about five whales a year, sometimes eight on a particularly good year. By comparison, the Tangalooma whaling station up in Queensland took 700 whales a year, and modern day Japanese and Nordic whalers, in defiance of world opinion, kill more whales in a single year than the Eden whalers took in a century. The Yuan people and the Davisons at least shared one common belief, there was no point taking more than you needed. But they were probably the only ones that thought that way. By the end of commercial whaling in Southern Oceans, Only 5% of the original population of right and humpback whales survived. Only 1% of blue whales did. The end of whaling in Eden came with a whimper and a betrayal. By 1930, four years after Jack's death, the killers who had numbered up to 50 were now only about four. Old Tom was still there, and now very much living up to his name, as he was estimated to be more than seventy years old at the time. George himself was pushing along, and was now sixty seven, and no longer in control of those little green boats anymore. That was John Logan, a neighbor of George's, and a man who some describe as thinking that he knew more than he actually knew. The incident occurred when they'd just managed to harpoon a humpback whale, with Tom's help, of course. But when George made to cast the humpback's body off so Tom could eat his fill, Logan stopped him. Logan argued that with the rough seas coming in, the carcass would easily be washed back out to sea, and they'd better get it to the whaling station as quick as possible. George was horrified. This went directly against the law of the tongue that he'd been living his entire life, but Logan wasn't having a bar of it. Logan didn't care for some small town superstition, and he shouted at George, berating him for not seizing an opportunity for some damned killer. The whales in the region were almost non-existent by this stage, and Logan said angrily that this might be the last whale that George ever took in. And I don't know why he did it. Maybe he was old? Maybe the financial burden at home was weighing heavily on him? Maybe he knew that there was some truth in what Logan was saying, because that was one of the last whales they ever took in. But for the first time in his life, George defied the law of the tongue. Tom's reaction was one of shock. He swam round and round the boat, thumping against it and grabbing at the lines as he furiously tried to stop the boat from towing the carcass away. Logan, furious in his own right, and perhaps more than a little bit scared as for the first time he began to witness a killer's real strength, grabbed an oar and smashed it down upon Tom's nose. Once, twice, again and again until blood poured from Tom's snout and a few teeth were wrenched out, all while George was watching in abject horror. Eventually, old Tom let go, rolled on his side to once more stare at George with that one intelligent eye, and then disappeared. George was heard to mutter, My God, what have I done? A few months later, Tom was found dead, floating just near the bar on the 13th of September, 1930, just in front of George Davison's house. George was seen to walk around the body of his friend, running his hands over Tom's sleek skin and talking to him, two old relics of a dying age. When he could bring himself to it, he cut open Tom's stomach and was distressed to find it empty. With severe overfishing in the oceans all up and down the coast, The killers had found it harder and harder to find food, and George himself had been seen on more than one occasion by the townsfolk to be feeding Tom. But it wasn't enough. And even then, Tom had more problems. From where his teeth had been knocked out by Logan, a deep abscess had formed, making eating very painful. So, therefore, old Tom had starved to death. At first, George had wanted to take old Tom's body back to the ocean, but Logan, perhaps in a fit of remorse for his part in Tom's death, suggested that his body be stripped and his skeleton preserved. And it was Logan who eventually funded the foundation of a museum for Tom's skeleton to be housed in, known as the Eden Killer Whale Museum, which still stands today. The death of old Tom marked the end of whaling in Eden. And in the decades that followed, slowly, slowly, we would eventually begin to take responsibility for the horrific devastation we brought upon the oceans. Although I'll make a note that there are people out there who would more happily defend whales than they would the Ewan people. And to those people, you can get stuffed. In the time that followed, the story of the Killers of Eden became nothing more than local legend. The museum, a cool little place to visit where you could gaze upon Tom's old skeleton and marvel at how his teeth were all ground down on one side as a result of him constantly pulling at the lines on the boat. But no one really outside the region talked about it anymore. Then, since about the 90s, a new kind of relationship has begun to spring up between the people and the whales tourism based the eden whale festival which is opened by the Yuan people is a yearly highlight and eden has finally found another little niche aside from just being a holiday country spot it now has multiple whale watching tours and has been named the single best spot in all of australia for whale sightings even killers In recent years, there's been an uptick in the number of reported sightings of killers who have even been observed visiting the bar just out the front of where Davidson's house used to be, but is no longer there. And a lot of people like to speculate that maybe these killers are the descendants of the original three Eden pods. This story these days is so fantastical that when some people hear about it, they simply don't believe it. But it happened. It may be the only place in the world where it did, but that doesn't make the truth of it any less real. Humans and orcas living and working side by side with a relationship that spanned decades and across generations in a tale that is now being moved to almost legendary status. The Whalers and the Whales, the Killers of Eden.